0: Today's scripture comes from John fifteen eight through John 16, 11, 20, and 22. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because you do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. But they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you.
1: In his article, The Structure of Gratitude, New York Times columnist David Brooks said this, I'm sometimes grumpier when I stay in a nice hotel. I have certain expectations about the service that's going to be provided. I get impatient if I have to crawl around looking for a power outlet if the shower controls are unfathomable, if the place considers itself too fancy to put a coffee machine in each room. I'm sometimes happier at a budget motel where my expectations are lower and where a functioning iron is a bonus and the waffle maker in the breakfast area is a treat. Can I get an amen to the waffle maker in the breakfast area? We love that, and it drives me nuts that a fancy hotel doesn't provide that. So I agree with David Brooks. But it's about expectations, right? Right expectations are so important because unmet expectations lead to disappointment and even worse. Case in point, a a Wall Street Journal article described what psychiatrists call the Paris effect. You say, what's the Paris effect? It's basically the disappointment that first-time visitors to Paris experience because of all that's been hyped up in the media when they get there. And so this article, listen to what it says. Many visitors expect a place full of romance and beauty and wealth. Instead, they find pavements peppered with cigarette butts, and aggravated commuters in packed metro trains. For some, the shock, now just remember that word, okay? The shock is too much to bear, prompting them to seek medical help for symptoms that may include irritability, fear, obsession, depressive mood, insomnia, and a feeling of persecution by the French. In extreme cases, the only remedy is a one-way ticket out of France, The Paris effect. Again, expectations. In chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus tells his disciples why he is setting their expectations. Why he is telling them what he is telling them. Verse 1, I have said all these things to you. I have set your expectations to keep you from... Falling away. Now, what what does it mean? What does falling away mean? Well, the word there actually means to be offended or, here's the word again, shocked. So offended and so shocked that you would retreat into self preservation mode. Now, he's speaking to his disciples. He's about to leave. And so he's saying, I don't want you to be so shocked and so offended by what's coming that you would retreat and back down into self-preservation mode. Now, we've seen this already in the Gospel of John, right? John chapter nine, when Jesus heals the blind man and the religious authorities and the Pharisees are trying to figure out what happened and they go to the blind man's parents and they say, how did he get healed? And what did the blind man's parents do? They knew how he got healed, but they said, ah, we don't know, we just know he's healed. And, and the text says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, bearing witness, which we're going to get to, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Then again in John 12, after Jesus describes the death he's about to die, in verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees. They did not confess it. They did not bear witness so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. When you confess Jesus Christ through words, through actions, when you live out your faith publicly, and there is some sort of opposition, some sort of rejection, there's a huge temptation to go into self-preservation mode. Two, like what people think of you, to like comfort more than faithfully bearing witness about Jesus Christ. There's a temptation to, as Jesus says here, fall away. And what I think that means is going into a private faith mode. That when you publicly confess Jesus and there's a cost and there's opposition, that there's this tendency and this temptation to go, I'm turning my faith private. I'm not talking about it anymore. It's not worth the cost. And so Jesus says to his disciples, and by extension to you and me, he says, let let me tell you these things. Let me set your expectations so that you don't fall away. So that you don't go into self-preservation mode, so that you don't settle for this privatized faith to avoid the cost, to avoid the pain, to avoid opposition. So the question is, how do you keep from falling away? What does Jesus say here that is gonna help you keep from falling away? First, expectations, real expectations. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, we got to define some terms here. First, the world. What is the world that Jesus is talking about? We read that, and our immediate response is to think the the irreligious world, the world outside of church. But notice who Jesus is speaking to here. Look at verse 2 of chapter 16. He says they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Jesus is speaking primarily here of the religious authorities, the Jews, the Pharisees of the day. That Jesus' disciples are gonna receive strong opposition and persecution from the religious authorities, from the Jews, from the Pharisees. And ultimately, Jesus says in verse 21 of chapter 15, verse 3 of chapter 16, is that the reason they're going to say these things, the reason they're going to oppose you is because why? They don't know God the Father. And so what we see here is that when Jesus is talking about the world, he's talking about the religious world that doesn't know God the Father and the irreligious world that doesn't know God the Father. But the common ingredient is those that don't know God the Father, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be opposition. Now, what is the hatred that comes from the world? What is hatred? Basically, what it's describing here is opposition. Opposition that runs the spectrum of intensity. From disagreement (laughs) to the opposition of verbal attack, to the opposition of physical harm, right? And Jesus lays it out. He says, hey, they're gonna either put you out of the synagogue on one end of the spectrum or they're gonna kill you all the way to the other end of the spectrum. But that there's gonna be opposition. And where does the opposition come from? Where does this hatred, this opposition or this resistance to the gospel come from? Well, it depends on what what part of the world you're talking about, right? When Jesus is speaking primarily here of the religious world, meaning the Pharisees the Jews the opposition comes from or why there's opposition is that is that Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ threatened their idolatry of power and their idolatry of control think about it when were the Jews and the Pharisees most when did they most vocally oppose Jesus it was when he cleared the temple it's when he healed on the sabbath it's when he he hung out with Gentiles and sinners, right? They had these these traditions they held deeply that fed their, their control and their power. And these traditions, Sabbath, temple, were meant to help them to know God the Father, but instead they used these things to worship their own idol of power and control. So when Jesus comes on the scene, and we've seen it in the Gospel of John, clears the temple, heals on the Sabbath, He's fulfilling these things, but what's he doing in the process? He is crushing their idol of power and control. He's threatening their idol of power and control. And how do they respond? The same way that you do when somebody threatens your idol of control. right? Opposition, resistance. Anytime an idol gets threatened, especially one of control and of power, somebody comes in and threatens it, and what do you do? You respond with opposition. That's what's happening here. And so with the religious world, typically the opposition to the gospel of Jesus comes with an opposition or comes with uh, the the threat to power and control, and that's why there's a reaction and a response. Now, the, the irreligious world, so we're speaking of, let's say, outside of church, outside of religion, why is there opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I think primarily it's because it threatens the idol of freedom, Threatens the idol of freedom. When when does the world, we'll just say the the irreligious world, most vocally oppose the church? Well, that's when the church says that there's only one way to God the Father, right? That, That there's one way through Jesus to God the Father. Or when the church talks about a sexual ethic that has boundaries, Right, there, there's no opposition for if, for, if you say that Jesus Christ is a way to God, there's gonna be no opposition to that. He's one of many ways to God, there's no opposition to that. Or if you say sex is permitted inside of marriage, there's no opposition as long as you say, but there's also freedom for it outside of marriage. Uh, or there's no opposition if you say marriage is for a man and a woman as long as you say, and also marriage is for two men, two women, right? It's the exclusivity of the gospel that, that causes this opposition because it seems like it's a threat to freedom. I don't have time to go into it, but I'll say this, is that there is no such thing as freedom. Every person, if you're here and you're not in Christ and you're, you're checking out Christianity, you need to know that, that every person on the face of the world is constrained by something or someone. It's about finding the right constraints. But that's why there's opposition, right, from the world, whether it's religious or irreligious. That being said, the church and the the world will always have some degree of opposition, that the world will oppose the church to some degree. Why? Well, when Jesus lived on the earth, he represented God the Father. And so he says, when they oppose me, they're opposing God the Father. Now with the church on earth, representing God the Father and Jesus the Son, now the church is the one that receives the opposition, but it's ultimately opposition of the Father. And this opposition, or this resistance, or this rejection varies depending on the cultural moment. For example, in the first century church that John is, in which John is writing, There was a huge racial issue. You know, you feel the racial tension today in our country. In the first century church, there was a massive racial issue, and it was called the Jew-Gentile tension. Could the Gentiles come in? How could they come in? And, And within the church, there was massive opposition, massive tension as the gospel came in and confronted racism. Now, today, we find sexuality, right? Being at the forefront as, as the thing that causes this, this tension between the church and the world, right? If the church stands on a biblical sex ethic, it, you're going to not win a whole lot of favor in our current cultural moment, right? The point is this, is that there is resistance and opposition throughout the centuries depending on the culture, the moment, but that's what Jesus is preparing his disciples for. He says, there's going to be opposition. So how do you handle this opposition without falling away? And Jesus says two things. He says, one, expect it, and two, don't personalize it. Right. One, expect it. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, right? This is Jesus' way of saying to his disciples that my earthly ministry is going to continue and that it's going to continue through you. It's going to continue through you. So whatever you saw me receive and experience is what you should expect to receive and experience. And what did Jesus receive? A mix of acceptance and a mix of rejection. There were some that were so incensed by Jesus and so angered by Jesus that they wanted to kill him. There were others that fell at his feet weeping. There were some that stood at a distance and folded their arms at Jesus. And there's others that ran up to him and embraced him. Acceptance and rejection. Jesus says to his disciples, guess what? You're gonna experience the same, the whole spectrum as you bear witness about me so he says expect it. And then second, he says when you are rejected, right? If you get the rejection side of things, not the acceptance side of things. When you are rejected, which, you know, in our country our day could be silent treatment, could be exclusion from a social circle, could be mockery by family, extended family. There's a, there's a there's a range. He says when you experience that, don't personalize it. Look at verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of what? Not you. On account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. And then verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying you're not being rejected. Ultimately, God the Father is being rejected. You're just bearing witness. You're a representative You've heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. You're the messenger, you're the face, you're bearing witness. But the resistance and the opposition, he says, don't personalize it. Because ultimately they're they're rejecting God the Father. They're rejecting God the Father. So expect it and don't personalize it. How do you not fall away? How do you keep from falling away? It's it's real expectations. But second, that, that's, that's good advice. Expect it and don't personalize it. Okay, we're all done, right? Really super easy to do, yeah? You know, a lot easier said than done, right? When you're in the thick of it, right? Oh, well, I, I expect it. Oh, they just crucified me. Ah, no big deal. I'm not personalizing it. I, of course, it's hard, Right? That's what Jesus says to do, but it's hard. And so what does he say? (laughs) You need some help, right? I'm telling you this, but you need some help. And so he's going to send help, right? Verse 26. So real expectations, but then real help. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit bears witness of the truth of Jesus through you. So the Holy Spirit empowers you to bear witness when you're facing opposition, when you're facing a cost. Now the word here for bearing witness is martyreo. It's where we get the word Martyr It's where we get the word martyr. Now, we use the word martyr typically to talk about someone who is killed for bearing witness about Christ. In fact, Tertullian, he was one of the early church fathers. He said that the blood of the martyrs, those that bear witness publicly about Christ, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And Revelation 16 talks about the blood of the martyrs. But the word martyr, or the the, the martyr is just the person that is publicly bearing witness about Jesus Christ through word and action. That's what a martyr is. Now, there's a cost to that, right? There's a cost to it. Jesus lays out the cost. You might get kicked out of the synagogue, exclusion, or you might die, you might get killed. And depending where you live is gonna, a lot of times, determine what that is. In the United States, you're probably not gonna get Killed for publicly confessing Jesus Christ. Now, depending on where you're at, you might get mocked. You might get excluded. You might get kicked out of a, a group or, you know, just kind of shunned, blackballed. Like that, that's real. Your extended family might mock you for the beliefs you have. That's all real. That's a cost. Now, if you're in the Middle East, if you're in the Middle East, there's a real possibility that if you bear witness publicly about Jesus Christ, that you could lose your life right? A place where the gospel hasn't taken root like it has in the United States, although that's even changing. So there's there's a cost, and the Holy Spirit empowers you to bear witness in the face of of costly opposition. One of the, the first martyrs outside the New Testament was in about 160 AD. His name was was Polycarp. He was was the pastor, bishop of the church at at Smyrna. And cool connection, Polycarp was one of the last known living people to have a relationship with one of the apostles, and he actually was a a disciple of John, the, the, the man who wrote this gospel. And Polycarp ended up burning to death. They burned him to death. The Roman authorities burned him to death for his public confession of Christ. But listen to the exchange that happened right before Polycarp was burned in the flames. Listen to this. The proconsul, which is the the Roman authority, said, swear by the fortune of Caesar, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Proconsul said, I have wild animals here. I will throw them to you if you do not repent. Polycarp didn't repent. So the proconsul said, if you despise the animals, I will have you burned. To which Polycarp said, I love this. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And he was burned to death. Now, why do I share that? It's not to make you feel bad that you're not publicly confessing Christ enough to where you get burned at the stake. It's not to say, hey, you go be more like Polycarp. That's not the point. No, I share this illustration, so you'll see a picture of what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to bear witness through a person in the face of tremendous cost. That's the point. You hear that story, it's not, oh, let's praise Polycarp. It's like, it's wow. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit bears witness through a person, in the face of flames, in the face of death. And so the cost to bearing witness here in the States isn't that. You're not gonna get burned at the stake, but there is a cost if you're publicly confessing Christ. And it may be, as I've said, exclusion. It may be mockery. It may be that you lose a promotion at work. And there's a variety of costs to, to standing firm and publicly confessing to Christ. And I think increasingly in our culture, and our country, as things go the way they are, that that's gonna be more of a reality, the cost to really stand for Christ. The cost is different, but the heart is the same. The temptation to go into self-preservation mode. The temptation, as Jesus says, to fall away. And to fall away means to privatize your faith and to go into self-preservation mode, and to stop bearing witness. And so Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to empower you in the face of opposition. When you do get imposed, the second thing he does with the Spirit, so the Spirit empowers you in the face of opposition to stand for Christ. But then the second thing the Spirit does is actually vindicates you, defends you in in the face of that opposition or when you are opposed. Look at verse eight says when he, meaning the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now remember, the world here, who's getting convicted? The world. Well, who's the world? Primarily, Jesus is speaking of the Jews, of, of, of Israel, of the, the, the religious authorities, the Pharisees that are gonna be doing this persecuting. There was always, in Israel's history, they were always at some point being attacked. There was always opposition. There were enemy nations that were were coming to attack them, to, to take them off into exile. They were always under some degree of opposition. And the question that God's people would always ask is, what did we do to deserve this? They would say, what did we do to deserve this? And the answer was always, there were two answers in the prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, and the two answers were this. The first answer was usually, you do deserve this. You're sin. You've sinned. You, you, you've thrown headlong into idolatry. And so I'm sending in enemy nations to ultimately, um, to attack you, but ultimately to, to change you, right? But it was, yeah, you, you deserve this. The second answer though, that always came from the prophets, usually towards the end of their prophecy, would be, God will take the seat of judge, and he will defend you and judge the nations that are attacking you. So as Jesus says this to his disciples, the question the disciples are going to face when he goes away and they're being attacked, literally the disciples being attacked, they were all, they were all martyred eventually, except John, that, that when they were attacked, their question would be, What have we done to deserve this? Is this evidence that God is against us? Is this evidence of judgment or condemnation? And Jesus says, no, the Holy Spirit will defend you. He will be your advocate. He will convict the world that they are wrong and that you're in the right and that you're gonna be defended. And he'll say they're wrong on three counts. Verse nine, concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. The, the core of the, the, the Jewish sin was failing to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And he says, We're gonna, I'm gonna convict them of that. And they're gonna see that, no, Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. Israel had this empty righteousness. They had this behavioral righteousness, but the inside was a mess. And, and through Isaiah, right? Isaiah says, your righteousness is like filthy rags. And so Jesus is saying they're going to be convicted of their empty righteousness. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, right? The Jews were passing judgment on Jesus along with the rest of the world, that when they killed him, he's gone. But the resurrection is the evidence that no, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king of the world, and they were going to be convicted, of their wrongness on that. And so the point is that the Holy Spirit is gonna come and convict. It is the human instinct in the face of failure and rejection to ask the question, am I being judged? Am I being condemned? Have I done something wrong? That's how we're wired. When opposition comes, what have I done wrong? What have I done to deserve this? And the point here, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for that, lots of attack, lots of opposition, is he says the Holy Spirit is going to defend you, be your advocate, and not let you misinterpret the data. The Holy Spirit will not let you misinterpret the opposition as evidence of condemnation. But the Holy Spirit is going to defend you and advocate for you so that you will interpret the opposition rightly as evidence of the earthly ministry of Jesus continuing through you. So that when the opposition comes, the Spirit reminds you that this is exactly what Jesus faced. And therefore, what you're going to face, along with acceptance, it's going to be both. Acceptance and rejection. So how do you keep from falling away? First, having real expectations. Second, having real help. Expect it, don't personalize it. Uh, And I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit to actually let you live that out, empower you to live that out. But then what about the sorrow? You know, what about the sorrow that you experience when you stand for Christ and it costs you a job promotion? What about the sorrow when you stand for Christ and you are on your college campus excluded from a social circle or from something or on the team, on the athletic team, you kind of get cornered and and, and put off to the side. What about the sorrow that fills your heart when that happens? And that's where Jesus says you need real hope. So not just real expectations and real help, but you need real hope. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And that's speaking of when Jesus is crucified and put in a tomb. The world will rejoice. You're going to be weeping and lamenting. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Then he goes on in verse 21 to describe Jesus' death and resurrection uh, and and parallels it to to the child birthing process right? The pain of giving birth, but then the utter joy when that child comes into the world. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, meaning after Jesus raises from the dead and appears to them, and your hearts will rejoice, and I love this, and no one No one, no situation, no sorrow, no uh, rejection, no opposition, no exclusion, no mockery, no physical harm, no verbal attack, nothing will take your joy from you after you see me risen from the dead. See, the resurrection is the assurance that all of your sorrow will turn to joy. And the resurrection is the assurance that all of your sorrow is well-planned and has an end and a purpose to it. You ever met anybody, maybe this is you, you ever met anybody that refuses to watch their favorite team play a game because they can't stand the angst and the jitters in the stomach and the sickness it brings. I've met people, they're, they're you know, diehard Gator fans or, or diehard Jaguar fans or whatever it may be. And they say, I don't watch the games. Why not? I can't stand it. I get sick to my stomach. I get nervous. I throw stuff around the room. I yell at my spouse. I yell at my kids. It's, it's a mess. I can't stand it. So I just check the score in the morning. Now you say to that same person, before they watch the game, you tell them the outcome. You tell them that their team won. That changes everything, doesn't it? It's, oh oh, yeah, I'll watch the game now. I'll watch the game now. I won't get sick to my stomach. I won't have the jitters. I won't have the sorrow, the pain, the anger, the lash, all the stuff that goes on. I won't have any of that. Even when my team gets down by 10. I can sit there and watch it. Oh, they're down by 10, no big deal. Why? Because you know who's gonna win. That's the resurrection. We know who's won. And so all the sorrow and the pain and the rejection, the opposition that you face if you're publicly living your faith out in word and in action not privatizing it, but publicly living it out, the opposition that you face and the sorrow and the pain and whatever comes with it, that sorrow is turned to joy by the resurrection of Jesus. Because you know the end. You know the victory. So Jesus says in verse 33 of chapter 16, in the world, you will have tribulation. You will have sorrow. You will have opposition. You will have rejection. But take heart, be of courage. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we hear stories of a man like Polycarp who confesses you and doesn't, retreat or go into self-preservation mode or repent or recant and gets burned at the stake and we hear stories like that and, and, and we wonder in our hearts, would I be able to do that? And I imagine it's the same thing that Polycarp and others that experience that were asking of themselves. Father, the answer is that when we bear witness of you, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit is bearing witness through us. And so Father, would you so embolden us by your Holy Spirit to bear witness of Christ in our extended family, in our workplace, in our sorority, in our fraternity, in our school classroom, At the play park, would you help us to bear witness knowing that the gospel of Jesus Christ ultimately belongs to you and that we are simply called to bear witness? Holy Spirit, give us the power, empower us to do that. Even if we are are seeing the, the cost and the opposition that we anticipate, that you would call us and empower us to bear witness to your glory and for your namesake because you are worthy. Even if it costs us our life or even if it costs us a friend or even if it costs us somebody that is, we want to like us. Even if it costs us financially in the workplace. Father, would you empower us by your spirit to bear witness, to take heart, and to do it knowing that the victory has already been won, that we are victors, that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. That Jesus, your resurrection and your life today would be so real to us by the power of the Spirit and so pulsing through us that we would be glad to bear witness on your behalf to this world that desperately needs you. Father, as we close in worship now, would you fill our hearts with the victory of the resurrection? What we have in Jesus and Holy Spirit, would you inhabit our praise? Would you lift it as a beautiful chorus to the Father from a people that desperately needs your spirit as we leave here? Let me pray this all in Christ's name, amen.